calling this message Barnabas because it's going to be connected to a man who crossed paths with Paul, with Saul, and uh, had a, a tremendous impact on him. But I want to start by having us look at Acts 9. We'll just look at the 26th verse here, Acts 9, 26. It says that when Saul had come to Jerusalem, it says, interesting, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. And, and they didn't believe that he was actually a believer, a real disciple. And this is, we're going to talk about this in a moment. You know, we talked last week for, you know, for, for a lot of our time. We've been getting us, ourselves sort of familiar with what happened in Saul's life. Saul, of course, is the Hebrew name, the, the Greek name he'll be known as down through time as Paul. But uh, Saul initially, remember we talked about this, how after three years he had been, you know, in the wilderness, in the Arabian wilderness, how he returned to Damascus and a much different man than the man who left. And after those three years away, he comes back to Damascus. And when he gets to Damascus, he, he starts talking about, with a tremendous amount of force and uh, powerful argument, he begins to declare that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, the promised one, that he was, in the Hebrew, Yeshua, the Savior of the world, God, our salvation. And that... That solicited um, a response. Um, it wasn't even intentional, but there was so much controversy around what he was saying, and he said it so strongly that there, we know that what happened was that the, the, the synagogue in Damascus, that he had actually would have, in, the, in three years earlier, <laughs> were his allies, those who were welcoming him in, uh, they were angry. They got so angry with him that there was actually a plot that was made to have him killed. He was, the plan was that as he was leaving the city gates, they were going to seize him and uh, essentially assassinate him. Well, the word gets back to the disciples in Damascus, and they, they tell, remember we talked about this, they tell Saul, look, you've got you to be careful. We've got to get you out of the city, but we can't let you go through the, through the exit, uh, the gates, because they're going to kill you. And so the, the plan, remember we talked about it, was hatched. To, they were gonna, we, we, we're gonna, we, we know a spot on the wall where we're going we're gonna to lower you down. We're going to put you in a big basket. We're going to lower you down and at nighttime, and then you're just going to, when you get to the bottom, you just get out and go, right? And so that was the plan. We talked about how humbling that was for him. I mean, think about it. Three years earlier, he had, he had been approaching the city as something of a, of a hero, a man feared, respected, genuinely uh, admired, and certainly um, uh, you know, people were aware of his power, that he represented Jerusalem's, Jerusalem's authority and had the ability to arrest these followers of Jesus when he was making his way into the city. Now here he is three years later. What a contrast, right? We talked about this. He's leaving in a basket. It's so humbling. He's hiding out. We talked about what that must have felt like. And then he makes his way, we're told, out of that, out of that into the night, he starts heading down towards Jerusalem. Let me put this on the up again just to give everybody a, a quick geographical sense of where we're at. Oh, and you know how much this is in the news right now. It is impossible not to be aware. I mean, there is so much stuff happening, as Jesus, by the way, said there would be in what he called the last days. There would be, he said, such conflict, such intense, um, even warfare, he said, as kingdom rises against kingdom in this region. Right now, we're seeing there's a civil war going on in Syria where Damascus is. Down below, as everybody knows, they're on the verge of war, even as we speak. I mean, there's, there's, there's so much movement taking place in this region of the world. Setting that aside for just a moment, though, we see that Paul makes his way from Damascus in the north to Jerusalem in the south. He begins to make this trek. Now, again, uh, we talk about how, you know, it, it was in Jerusalem where it all began three years earlier. 
Jerusalem was the place where Saul had been trained. It was the place that he was familiar with. When he originally set out to um, you know, pursue the, these followers of Jesus and have them arrested, he was coming out of Jerusalem. So you know, Jerusalem is the place where he had made his reputation. It was the place where the great city, uh, the city of his fathers, it was the city where he had been trained and, and had emerged in the estimation of some as the brightest star of his generation. The, the star pupil, it, it appears, or at least a significant achiever who had been trained under the leading, one of the leading rabbis of the time, Gamaliel. It, Saul was someone who had um, built a tremendous amount of, of uh, I say, leveraged relationship in Jerusalem. So I, I can imagine, and I, I think we're invited to do so, but we're, you know, it was he who had been involved in the Stephen controversy. He had, remember, held the cloaks of those who killed Stephen. Uh, he was someone who had had power, but, it, but it was, he was also extremely strategic with that power. And now, three years from the time that he had left, he's returning to the great city, a city he knew so well. Perhaps when he was far off, he could see from the distance the temple as it stood out, a temple that he had gone to hundreds, no, maybe thousands of times to offer sacrifices unto the Lord. Sacrifices that he and his people knew anticipated the coming of Messiah. A Messiah that he now believed had come. The very one that he had thought was a fraud had appeared to him, he said, on the road to Damascus. You recall it. It was on the road to Damascus where it says he was blinded by that light. And the, the, the living Jesus, he says, spoke to him. And when he instantaneously sensed that it was God, he said, who are you, Lord? And the voice that came back to him was, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It's hard to fight against me. And from that moment on, his world is turned upside down. Now he's returning back to the place where it all began, Jerusalem. And I think he now understands for the first time that everything that had been anticipated by what his people and he had been doing, all the promises were now being fulfilled in Jesus, the one that he initially had despised and now was going to advocate. It was setting the table for what would be a remarkable confrontation. For as he made his way through the city streets, Streets, again, that I'm sure he would have been so familiar with. Perhaps as he was on the outskirts of the city, he came to the spot and paused and looked at the place where Stephen had been slaughtered. Perhaps he even for a moment stood and looked at the spot where he had held the coats and watched it all happen with a smug self-righteousness that was indicative of his arrogance that had characterized him as a very self-righteous and strongly convinced man. And now... He stood there. Perhaps he pondered what had been. Maybe in his mind's eye, he remembered for a moment how that man who he had despised, who he had argued with, whose death he had been complicit in, had prayed out words that he at the time thought were absolutely ludicrous when this man dying said, Lord Jesus, I commend my spirit to you. And then those final words, words that would haunt him now, Lord, do not, and yet were salvation to him. Lord, do not lay this sin upon him upon their charge. Maybe he remembered that, remembered the martyr, remembered the man as he pushed himself forward into the streets one more time, heading towards a future. He could not yet foresee, but he knew everything had been altered because he had met the risen Jesus. And what we know happens next is as he's making his way to find the, the believing community, that some things begin to occur. Um, 
Later on, Paul would look back at this time. In fact, you'll notice in your handout, and I'll just kind of read this from the book of Galatians. Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, talks about this time in his life. I think it's worth looking at and seeing how it intersects with what we read here in the book of Acts. Look what he says. In, in, this is in Galatians 1. I'll read verse, starting with verse 13. He says, he, he says to uh, the, the Galatian church, he says, For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I, I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. I think a lot of you are aware of who I used to be. And... And you know how I had advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being, if I'm being honest, more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But also, I, may, I must say that when it pleased God, it pleased God who had separated me from my mother's womb and called me through, only through his grace, to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately go up and confer with flesh and blood. My first recourse was not to sort of go to, into a think tank with others. What I did was I actually pulled myself out of, of the culture. I pulled myself out of, you know, my social environment, and I went into a more solitary place, relatively speaking. I got alone, and for three years, I essentially was with God, and I, can, I just let him speak to me through his words about who Jesus was, and it was there that his, his doctrines, his teachings, his understanding that will penetrate the known world were formed, and he says, and then, you know, look, he says, I didn't even go up to Jerusalem, that's what we, I didn't go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but instead I went to Arabia, and then after I was there for those, I returned back to Damascus, he says, and then after those three years, I went up to Jerusalem. So he says, so that's, and that is, so that intersects with verse 26 here in Acts 9. So what he's saying was that after those three years, I, I, I left Damascus, went in the wilderness for about a three-year period, come, came back to Damascus. Remember, I'm lower, he's lowered out of the city in the basket, and then he says, I made my way to Jerusalem. That's what he's saying. He says, and after these three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter. Interesting point of data there, detail. He says, my goal actually was to confer with Peter. I wanted to talk to him. I wanted to talk to him, him who had been so close to the Lord in his earthly ministry. And he says that, you know, I, I, I remained with him for 15 days, and I didn't see any of the other apostles except for one. And then he, he makes a point of mentioning someone who we didn't initially know was an apostle. If we hadn't, of course, read the account in the book of Acts, which is this, that he says, I actually met with another of the apostles, James. Not James, the brother of John, but James, the half-brother of Jesus. Essentially, what he's saying is we know that James, the, who was also the son of Mary, um, had not been a believer. They had not believed in Jesus. But evidently, after the resurrection of Christ, he had gone from the, death, from the, from the column of a doubter and an unbeliever to, to a supreme advocate of the Lord and had moved into a position of great leadership and authority in the early church of Jerusalem. And so... Paul, Saul, begins to meet with, these, with Peter and with James. And then we're told here that he says, now, now concerning the things which I write to you, indeed before God, I don't lie. I'm not trying to exaggerate or make this up. He says, afterwards, I then went into the region of Syria and Cilicia, and I was actually not known by faith. People didn't recognize me there, the churches of Judea, which, which were in Christ. He says, but... Um, they were hearing only, they were hearing only that this is the, the man who used to, for, who formerly persecuted us, and now he's preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. That's what I begin to be known as. 
The guy who used to oppose this way, used to persecute us, but now is actually preaching the faith that he used to destroy. And then it says, he says, and then they glorified God in me. They thanked God for what he had done in my life. It's a great passage. Now that brings us all the way back here to that 26th verse. So let's look at this together. But what does he say happens next? It says that uh, initially that the disciples, when he goes back to Jerusalem, right? I'm just going to go back to that moment. When he gets into town, he's thinking perhaps that he's going to be embraced, right? But that's not what happens. Their initial reaction is, this guy's dangerous. It's been three years. It's true. We've heard things. We don't believe him. We're afraid of him. I think he's, think he's trying to run a ruse here, that he's somehow disingenuous, that his intention is actually to find out who they are, trap them, and ultimately imprison them. So the initial reaction of the early church community was, we don't want anything to do with this guy. And, and I wonder how Paul felt about that. I mean, he really had made a radical change in his life, and yet they were scared of him. And their fear kept them, kept, made sure they were keeping him at an arm's distance they, until there was one man who emerges. He was a man who had a reputation for his unique generosity. He was a man who was highly respected, a recognized leader, a man who had been known to really be an encourager, that when people talked about it, they talked about his positive, optimistic love for others, and particularly his way in which he just encouraged people. That was his reputation. The man's name was Barnabas. And we're told that Barnabas, as he's hearing about everybody being scared of Saul, not wanting to welcome him in, and maybe Paul thought, well, maybe, you know, this is just part of the deal. This is the collateral damage for the way I've been in my past. But boy, I sure wish that they were a little more willing to trust that God can do stuff. But Barnabas makes the decision, and we read about it in verse 27. Look what it says. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. And what did he declare? He declared... He declared to them how he, had, he, that is Paul, had seen the Lord on the road and that he had preached boldly at them. And he told them about how he had preached boldly in Damascus in the name of Jesus. And, and so he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. What we see here is that, you know, it's Barnabas who is the one who essentially, you know, becomes the bridge, a sponsor. He becomes a sponsor for Paul. And he basically says, look, I believe this guy and I believe what God has done is an amazing thing in his life. And the transformation is real. It's genuine. Hey, I've even, I've even heard about how he has uh, created uh, uh, quite a stir in Damascus when he was advocating on behalf of Jesus. And he was bold when he did it. And, he was, and they wanted to kill him. He goes, look, I believe in the man. You need to accept him. I'm putting my reputation on the line for him. It's a big deal. And he relays the story of his conversion. Look what it says happens next. It says that, it says that and so, you know, he begins to get access into the community and he's coming in and he's going out and then we're told in verse 29 that he spoke boldly look at this he spoke boldly in the name of the lord jesus and he even disputed against the hellenists that would be the greek-speaking uh, jewish community in jerusalem at the time a community by the way that that he was a part of he had been, these were his former peers allies and associates and now he and they were these were the this was the group in contrast to the Hebrew-speaking Jews at the time, who seemed to have reached some type of a detente with Peter and the early church leaders and James. But there was this sort of tension in the, in the more Greek-enculturated wings of both the church. That's, that's kind of what Stephen had rep- represented. Because remember, Greek was like the English of its day. 
And so there, there, were, there were a lot of Jews who had lived outside of, of, the, of Israel and of the Palestine, as, as the Romans called it. And they had been you know, working and living in, in a Greco-Roman world. And so their culture was Greek, even though their faith was Hebrew. This is what Paul was. Paul was a man of two cultures. He was bicultural. And that makes him perfectly suited to take this message into the Gentile world. He was trained in the way of the Jewish faith, but deeply in ease, at ease with Greek culture so that he was familiar with poets and, and philosophers and, and also the way of the Romans themselves. And so this unique kind of blend of experience that allowed him to operate freely in both places. Well, the tension emerges between the, the Greek-speaking uh, Jerusalem community uh, leadership and, and Paul because Paul is not a passive advocate of Jesus. He's more in the, um, how would we say it, He's more of the line of Stephen. He basically takes on the mantle of the martyr himself. It's almost like Saul says, you think Stephen was tough. Watch this, right? And he begins to make the case for Christ in, in ways that they're going, they, he knew them, he knew their way. It, there was deep tension, so much tension, so much anger that the decision is made, he needs to be killed, and so you have his former associates and friends who are just dumbfounded at what has happened. Wait a second, what happened to him? What happened to you? And he's saying, what happened to me is I saw the risen Jesus. And I am telling you, he is the fulfillment of all that God has promised. And let me show you in his word. And his, it was a powerful argument. It was difficult. It was difficult for the opponents to, to resist it. And as he makes the case, they get more and more angry to the extent that they want to kill him. And finally, the disciples get wind of this. Look what it says here. He disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. Verse 29. And when the brethren found out, they brought him down, look at this, to Caesarea, and then they sent him out to Tarsus. Let me just put that map up real quick. Look what happens. Okay? They basically say to him, look, he's in Jerusalem. See where Jerusalem is? And then see where the Mediterranean Sea is? And see Caesarea is right on on the coast of the Mediterranean. What they basically say is, look, you can't stay here. You're gonna be a dead man. They're gonna kill you. Get out of here. We, get going, we're gonna send you over to Caesarea, then we're gonna put you on a boat. We're gonna get you up to, to, back to Tarsus. What, what is significant about Tarsus? That was the place where he was born and raised as a boy. And remember, his father had sent him from Tarsus all the way down to Jerusalem in his teen years to be trained in form as a Pharisee. And so his, his, his training had occurred in Jerusalem, but his boy at home was in Tarsus. The disciples say, you go back. And so Paul goes full circle, but this time everything's changed. He is now a fully committed advocate of Jesus. Now, there's so much there for us. Let me just lay this out. It's our final piece here. This is how I want us to interact with it, okay? Just listen up if we can. I want to suggest firstly, and this is important to me anyway, I, that there are going to be times when you and I are going to have to risk this is one thing that stands out. There are going to be times when you and I are going to have to risk, I, I would even say being rejected or at least misunderstood if, as we follow Jesus. You say, what are you talking about? I mean, you know, I, I, I'm going to say, look, in Paul's case, he risked way more than just rejection. He literally put his life on the line. And already we've seen <laughs> his early life is characterized by assassination plots I mean, he's already had to leave two cities basically being pushed out of the city by the disbelieving community because people want to kill him. It is, I don't think any of us have even remotely experienced physical threat because 
of a confession of our love for Jesus. And we take for granted our freedom to gather together and to speak about his name in sacred ways. It's like an assumption we make that, that we can do that anytime we want to, that we can speak and declare our love for him, that we are a follower of Jesus. I will point out that there are still places in the world where for a person to even declare that they have a love for Jesus and a commitment to him and to talk about him as the Savior is to risk losing everything. We are not presented with risking much of anything, perhaps, than someone's opinion. I want to suggest that, that most of us, and I know that there are times where we are going to be placed in positions where we have to decide, am I going to speak up for the Lord or am I just going to say nothing? I was reminded, though, even though we have not been asked to die or suffer physically, we are being asked to live for Jesus. You know, Paul would later write to the church in Rome. He would say, I beseech you, therefore, and this is in Romans 12, I beseech you, therefore, my brothers and sisters, based on the mercy of God, I strongly exhort you to present your bodies, not as a dead sacrifice, but as a living sacrifice. Give your lives to him. Give your lives to him. Present your bodies to him, these bodies of ours, as a sacrifice. Let God use our bodies for his purposes. Let our lives be holy and acceptable unto God, which is just our reasonable service. He says, in light of everything that Jesus has done for us, we would give him back our lives. And then he says, do not be conformed to this world, our system, our culture, our way of thinking. Don't let it shape and define us. He says, instead, I challenge you to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let the truth of God's words fill your mind so that you might prove what is that good and perfect and acceptable will of God, that you may know his plan for your life and then, and then live into that plan. Pursue a life that is centered in him. Now, again, I know it is possible, I suppose, to be over the top for Jesus. Every now and then I'll run into someone and I'm saying, I, I, I really wish you would stop talking about the Lord because the more you talk, the, the more damage is being done. And I say that not as someone who doesn't want to talk about Jesus, because I've probably been a person who at times has been too over the top. I probably have. I'll say it. You know, maybe it didn't come off across it, maybe use it. But I'll tell you this. There are other times where, let's just be honest, yes, it is possible to be too, too confrontational, but I'll tell you, I don't think that's most of our problem. I think the more likely thing is that we're more likely at times to be silent when we should speak up. There are times where we should let it be known that we love him, that, that actually that name means something to us. There are times where we need to say, I am not ashamed of my devotion to the Lord. I mean, there are, I was talking to some younger believers. We've had a number of people baptized and made commitments to Christ in these past few years. This is especially true for young believers, I've noted. There's so much enthusiasm. And oftentimes, it's like a cold water in the face when someone who they thought would be really happy for them uh, is actually negative. When they hear about the decision that is made either to be baptized or really commit their lives to Jesus and start getting really involved, it's almost like, well, it's OK to kind of believe from a distance, but you got to be careful about getting too consumed in that stuff, right? 
And to find people not supportive or somehow maybe a workmate, a friend, an associate, even a family member can sometimes really be discouraging. But I want to tell you, all of us are called at times to risk something for Jesus. A faith that never risks anything is pretty pathetic. It has nothing. The cross costs something. It's like either the Lord is our Savior and our Lord, or he isn't. He never said, just dabble in this thing a little bit. One thing I love about Paul, when he was in, he was all in. All in. He, there was no, it was no equivocation, no playing it both ways. I'm in. I'm in. I'm in. I'm already dead, he said. I already died. You can't kill me. <laughs> it was pretty intense. It's like you're walking around saying, I got nothing to lose because I already gave my life away. So you can take it. But I'm Jesus through and through. That's intense. I'm his. And if he chooses to take me home, he takes me home. But I'm his. And I'll suffer the loss of all things. But I'm his. That's powerful. That's intense. I'm not saying that we're, we're being asked to, to meet those levels. I will say this. Listen, there are times where the Lord is going to say to you, speak up for me. Let it be known that you love me. Don't be ashamed of me. Paul would later say, I am not ashamed. In Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God that can save a man and save a woman, a Jew and Gentile alike, he said. And so I'll proclaim it. Now, that leads me to the second piece here, which I love. And that is this. That all of us sometimes are going to need people in our lives to encourage us, who believe in us. This is so true. And you say, what are you talking about? I'm talking about Barnabas and Paul. Think about it. Barnabas believes in him. He basically says, look, I know everybody's doubting you right now. I know everybody's afraid of you right now. But I believe in you, and I believe in what the Lord is doing in you. And he puts his arm around him, and he encourages him, and he, and he sponsors him, and he, he puts his reputation on the line for him. And I was thinking about this. I was looking back over my own life. I was thinking about the different people in my life who I was just, you know, I found myself being really grateful. This is a good week for being grateful. I mean, it's always good to be grateful. This is a really good week to be grateful. This is a good week to slow down and to thank the Lord for people. I was thinking back to my own formation in the Lord. I found my, my mind drifting back in time, now a long time back. And I remember as a boy in this place, how I went to a Sunday school class. It was just a few of us in that class. And I remember sitting with a very old Sunday school teacher who, whose vision was gone pretty much. Her name was Sister Washington. That's what I called her, Sister Washington. I don't even know her. For, I don't remember calling her first name. She taught me Bible stories. I never forgot those Bible stories. They've stayed with me my whole life. I thought about my first youth pastor I ever had. Thought about a man named Steve McFarlane who put up with the shenanigans of a rascal boy and he loved me, and, he, and he, he, a boy who had come out of a broken home, and he showed me what Jesus looked like. And I, never, and I, and I, and I love that man for that. I get, actually, I'm going to see him in a couple weeks, Lord willing. He's a pastor in Chico. Thought about, thought about a pastor who was one of the most happy, optimistic people I'd ever met 
And he was a man who struggled with a disease all his life. His name was Archie Webb. And uh, he had a hemophilia and a blood disease. And so he was always battling weak. He was weak. And, and yet what amazed me about him was he was just so positive And he was so happy. And I always, I was, I remember I talked about how Jesus was a happy man. Well, I was a happy man who loved Jesus too. He had a lot of reasons not to be, and yet he was. And he was the first person that ever encouraged me to really think about the possibility the Lord was asking me to pursue um, a life of speaking about him in a, in, a, in a way that would be a blessing as a preacher. And I, I remember him. I started, you know what I started doing? I started moving down the list of all the people who had, at times in my life, encouraged me to follow Jesus. And I guess what I'm trying to get at here is I think, I think of countless friends and associates and people who've crossed my path, family members who really have, and others who have modeled for me a life of genuine love, faith, and Christ-likeness. And those people have made a difference in my life for God. And I'm going to suggest that all of us really, if we pause for a moment, we are a product of other people who have crossed our paths and encouraged us and strengthened us, some of whom have prayed for us. Some of us are here directly because people... Um, sometimes grandparents prayed for us, prayed for us to come home, prayed for us to come back to him, uh, prayed for us to stop running away and be where we belong. Others of us have someone took a risk and talked about him with us, changed our life. Sometimes, some of us, when we were struggling at our lowest points, felt like a failure, absolutely discouraged, and even at times unable to do it. We found that other people believed that the Lord would work in our lives if we stayed with it, and they strengthened us at key moments in our life with God. There are so many, you know what? Our life in the Lord, wherever we are here, we are a, a, it's like a mosaic. And I know that in a mosaic, it's like these tiles that create a picture, right? And they're put together and, and little piece by piece. Some pieces really stand out. Some people stand out uniquely in our lives. I'll tell you, I was talking about, I said, you know, there are some people in my life, they've mentored me that I've never even really met them. I don't know them well, but I love their words. And I've read them. I've read about their lives. Some of them are dead. They're long gone. But their words have lived on in me, strengthened my life in the Lord, encouraged me to follow him. The point is, all of us have people in our lives this is who, have, who have been a blessing to us. And this is a good time for us to remember that and to say thank you, Lord, and to thank them. And if they're alive, thank them. Thank them this week and bless them. And then flip this over to the other side. And this is our third and final, final thought here around this point. And it is this. Sometimes we're going to be asked to take a chance and invest and believe in other people. See the difference? People believe in us. People invest in us. People pray for us. Listen, sometimes we're going to be asked to do that for others as well. And this is the way of the Lord. This is what Barnabas did with Paul. He, he, he believed in him. He, he believed that what God was doing in his life was real. He, he came around that. He nurtured it. He, he, he represented the heart of the Lord to him. And as a result, we all get blessed. He invests, we got blessed. And this is how it works in the kingdom of Jesus. We're all connected so many ways to one another. And who can say all the blessings? Now, I know there are times where we're going to feel like, you know, and I'm not talking about code, being a codependent, an enabler. I'm, I'm not saying there aren't times to draw lines and that there are times where we just have to be careful about enabling a dysfunction. I get that. I get all that. But there are also times when the Lord is asking us to believe for people and to go the extra mile and, and, to, try, and to pursue something in prayer and to send out another word of encouragement and, and extend another hand, because it's been done to us too. And this is the way the kingdom works. 
It's about, it's about blessing one another. It's about being grateful. It's about being open to being an encourager. This is how it works best. And sometimes we see a harvest, and it's amazing, 30, 60, 100 full. You just don't know all the good that's going to come. How did Barnabas know how much good was going to come? Because he took the step to be a bridge to represent someone who a lot of people didn't believe in. And out of that came a flow of life. Honestly, many of us are a byproduct of that very flow. It's the way of the Lord. How grateful we are for the good things that God does. May we in turn respond and be that type of person to others. Let me pray. Let me bless, this, bless our time as we close out here. And we got a final song that's going to connect with what we've done. But Lord, I come before you as, uh, as humbly as we can before you, as honestly as real. None of us self-made in you, Lord. We're, all part of, we're, we're byproducts of other people, um, some of whom we've known, some of whom, honestly, prayed for us and we never knew it. Um, but, but, Lord, I just, I just pray that we would be a people who uh, exercise gratitude, uh, that we, 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 we are thankful. Even now, Lord, I, I bless the people who, who modeled you, who, who took time, to speak um, loving, good words, not perfect people, but, but genuine, honest, real people who loved you deeply. And I just pray, Lord, that, that you would cause us to be that type of people too, a people who are anchored in gratitude and open to encouraging and blessing even as we have been blessed. So I just pray, you know, Lord, bless our time of giving. Many of us give our tithes and our offerings. We honor you in this. It's important to us. Bless our closing song. Let it be our closing word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.